This is Michael Shapiro, and welcome to Interplay Conversations in Music. I'm your host. Today, I have five wonderful friends from all over the country. Carolyn Watson in Kansas City. And my God, Jim Allen Anderson, somewhere in Delaware, we think, right? Yep. <laughs> that beautiful house of yours. Thank you. My God. And Matthias Elmer in Virginia. Kevin Suderlin, my friend in Fargo, and not 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 to remain uh, to mention the least of all of these men, James and Lady James Tapia in Syracuse. Great to see everyone. It's wonderful to be here. You know, Carolyn, we lost last saw each other in a different world. <laughs> we were. At, what did you say? We had a wonderful dinner in Philadelphia at a wonderful Italian restaurant and was catered upon by this amazing proprietress who gave us dish after dish after dish. Would you like to try this, she said. Well, that was a joyous time and God willing, we'll all be together soon. Carolyn, what are you seeing now from your students um, as you get into this, starting this new semester, this final semester, the third semester of COVID? Where's this all going for you, do you think? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, it's going in different places and different directions all, all uh, simultaneously, I think, you know, people experience things uh, very personally and very differently. Um, and, you know, the, the feedback I'm getting from my students is that, you know, it's, it's very up and down. Some days they do great, other days it's just like, wow, this is really, really a struggle. At, at KU, at the University of Kansas, where I'm the Director of Orchestral Activities, we've actually been very, very fortunate um, in that our ensembles have been able to meet in person uh, this, this past semester, and we're planning on doing the same thing for the forthcoming semester. So my orchestra has been capped at a maximum of 45 uh, players, which is obviously smaller than our typical symphony orchestra, but nonetheless is a very viable ensemble. So uh, we were able to do two concerts, uh, and we have obviously a socially distanced um, setup and copious quantities of hand sanitizer, and we're all masked, and the players, uh, the wind and brass, have particular uh, playing masks, you know, with special slits for the instruments, and they've got bell covers to limit the aerosol emissions. But yeah, with a, with an ensemble of 45, we've managed to do a Mendelssohn 5 and a Beethoven symphony cycle, uh, chamber sorts of works along that, um, you know, along those lines. So, um, and the feedback from the students, uh, you know, a lot of whom have spent, you know, so many hours behind Zoom was just that orchestra was, uh, you know, for a lot of them, their only in-person experience, their only in-person class. And in many ways, it, it really, um, you know, kind of gave them that whole social interaction that, you know, is, is associated with college that, you know, just is kind of missing, obviously, when you meet, particularly as a freshman, for example, or coming in as a new master's or doctoral student to a, a different institution, you mm -hmm. haven't got that interaction with people where you're kind of, you know, standing in the corridor um, before class, I guess you've got that time standing in the corridor six feet apart when the, 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 the you know, air uh, cycles need to be replenished in the, the rooms because we have a 30 minutes on, 20 minutes off uh, rehearsal limitation as advised by the Colorado study. But yeah, that's that's pretty much where, where we are and what we've been able to do so far. I'm very curious of Jim Tapia. Jim, the emotional state of the students uh, at Syracuse, uh, where you are uh, conductor and director of a long time of the orchestral work there. And also you did a good deal of band work there. Can you talk about it, the emotional state of it now? Sure. Um, as we were talking about, you know, just prior to getting online, um, you know, the orchestras, we, we touch every nook and cranny of a school of music. Uh, we collaborate with the choral programs. We work with the vocal faculty, perhaps opera. Um, you know, we, we encounter work with strings, winds, brass, and percussion, woodwinds, brass, and percussion. And so I think an orchestra is an excellent barometer uh, for, for understanding the health of the institution. And like Carolyn, we were very fortunate. We were able to rehearse in person. Uh, the university did a fantastic job. Uh, acquiring spaces for us that were large enough for us to put 30, we, we were capped at 31 people in our space. Um, and we had to rotate ensembles and like Carolyn, we were doing 30 minutes on, 20 minutes off, 30 minutes on. 
Um, but because we were in a disparate building, it created challenges for us that, you know, transport of instruments, you know, making sure that people were able to get from classes to classes on time, uh, you know, making sure that the, the staff in the new building, you know, were not faced with challenges that were insurmountable. But the students feel all of that. You know, they, they, they both feel uh, the pressure of it and the weight of it, but they also feel the respect and honor that come from that kind of open door policy in our institution. And so I think mm. it really created a sense of investment and value for the students. Um, you know, I, I'm fortunate, you know, in our school of music, you know, we have 300-ish majors. And so we, we are a family. I mean, it is, it is an environment in which we build uh, upon relationship, um, understanding and collaborative artistry that is, you know, it's infused in everything that we do. And we have music industry students, music right. business students, you know, you know, therapy students coming online. So I, I think that when we then had to go online, which we, we left school on November the 6th, I think it was, mm -hmm. um, just out of the caution of the upstate New York COVID scenario, um, there was an immediate emotional impact on the students. Uh, meeting with them, you know, still regularly online and the classes that I teach, the conducting class, and I teach a music history and literature course this semester was uh, Mahler and Strauss intertwined was the, the class that I taught. Huh. And, and, but, you know, the, the zeitgeist and the angst that those kinds of things bring out in the students, because it's such raw emotional content. Uh, we were, re we were rehearsing and then we wound up recording uh, the finale of the Bach B minor mass, the Dona Nobis uh, Pachem portion of that for a performance uh, for Hendrix Chapel holidays at Hendrix. And, and the emotional content of it is overwhelming. Um, but, but again, you can, you can feel it bisect from yeah. in-person collaboration versus the online collaborative feeling. And, mm -hmm. and so, you know, the, the, the heavyweight work that we then do online is overwhelming because not only do you have to, through digital information, connect with them emotionally, but you have to then care for them, you know, and, 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 it is it is a true challenge. No, it's know. definitely a true challenge. I want to, to go to, you know, Syracuse is upstate New York from Chappaqua, where I live, and it's actually colder than uh, a little bit than Chappaqua. But even colder than Syracuse is Kevin Sutherland's uh, <laughs> Moorhead, Moorhead Fargo location. Hey, Kevin, I'm very curious to hear from you about your wonderful school, which I visited and actually conducted your orchestra at the Fargo Theater and of course, Frankenstein, <laughs> which was an amazing experience for me because, you know, I remember one thing about it, which was absolutely incredible. And then we'll talk about the emotional state of your, of your people. Uh, I was about to go, you invited me to come. So that, as, as you said, so that the students could have the experience of a professional conductor. And I acted like one, <laughs> you know, which is very easy for me to do in any event. Old movie house, the Fargo Theater with the marquee outside, and always oh, fabulous, great, and wonderful restaurants we went to, and so forth, which is, as you all know, my favorite thing to do. So we're about to go on. It's 7 38 o'clock start. And your manager, wonderful guy, comes back and says, Michael, we can't start. There's a problem. I said, What's the problem? He says, There's a, there's a line down the street. <laughs> you know, words to my ears, wonderful thing. And it was beautiful weather there in Fargo. But I'm very curious, Kevin, if you could talk about uh, coming off of what uh, you've just heard from these folks. Where are you going out there in, in Concordia College with your, and what have you been doing? I, I have been seeing some of the videos, which is striking. But you have a great chorus and you have a great orchestra and a great program there. But coming off of these two wonderful friends, where's it going and where has it been? Yeah, thanks, Michael. Uh, for your kind words, right? It is a, a very cold place. It's Antarctica, <laughs> but warm hearts. Uh, and I've really felt so welcome the five years that I've lived here now. And of yeah. course, uh, as you said, Michael, having you here was a great highlight of our thank you of our, our year 2017, I think it was, right? And I have the poster sitting right up here. You see <laughs> right. a miniature Frankenstein there. Yeah, yeah. My monster. Um, that's right. 
but no, you're I can only echo right what what Carolyn and what James said. Um, it's been it's certainly been a, a difficult year, a challenging year, but also a year uh, of you know several silver linings and sort of really having to be creative. And I think this need to be creative has put out some really wonderful products in the end and products as well as processes, right? To, to yeah. get to that point. Um, we're at a school where almost two thirds of the entire student population participates in some form or fashion in music. So it's a very, very lively musical culture here. And with four choirs and, and two full orchestras, three full bands, a very active place. And it was clear for us that once the Colorado studies that Carolyn mentioned came out, uh, that we have to do our best, you know, to, of course, be as safe as possible, but that we'd have to uh, be making music. And so we've been very fortunate that all our choirs, all our ensembles have been working, uh, all adhering to these strict protocols. Um, that was Colorado College and Boulder. I know Jerry Junkin, you know, the great band director, told me about them when they were in process. And that's what you're referring to, right? That's right. Yeah, right. All the, the, the studies and protocols that, that Caroline had mentioned earlier. Uh, similar to what James said, we too are a family, right, in this music department. And community is number one, right? That sits at the core of everything we do is that out of this sense of community right. and supporting each other, true art can, yep. can then develop, right? And that has been more difficult at first to build this year with a, with a new group when you can't actually read a whole lot of your facial expression. And we usually do, you know, devotionals before concerts. We do um, uh, entire weekends where we spend social time together as well as rehearsal time together. And all of that I couldn't really do with my students. Um, but we've all just really made sure that we focused on understanding how lucky uh, we are to be together in the first place to make music and, um, you know, exercising gratitude uh, in that. I know, I know. And you have a, 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 a school which has a religious background and a religious uh, um, input, but not necessarily anything that's overbearing, which I noticed. I was very free atmosphere. Matthias, you, you've gone now from um, Connecticut College, where we met in the collaboration we did with Wesleyan, now to Virginia, which to me is a wonderful move because it's warmer. <laughs> I'm really into warmth right now. All right, I, uh, I was just on the phone with a famous conductor who's got a, a condo high in the clouds in Miami and he's looking out over Biscayne Bay and he's there studying his scores and smoking his cigar and I was incredibly jealous. But in any event, as we go down south now to Virginia Tech, which is a wonderful school, Tell me about what you're doing and where you see this is all going for your school right now. Uh, thanks uh, for inviting me, first of all. Uh, yes, so uh, when we met uh, at Connecticut College, that was the first semester when the uh, the pandemic pandemic outbreak was, right? Uh, that was in mid of March, uh, where we basically shut down. So we didn't have like the experience as we all gained together throughout last summer, like with uh, how we can rehearse online. So at that time, um, we just had uh, online uh, conversations and talks with uh, right. the orchestra that you met at Connecticut College. Yeah. So that was the first semester, because I want to build a bridge when you mentioned about three semesters now with living COVID. And then the second semester, so in the meantime, in the summer, I moved down to Virginia, as you mentioned, uh, to Blacksburg. And it's now basically halfway through because I studied together with Kevin in Memphis. And now from Connecticut, it's halfway through. Tennessee. So now I'm in in, in, Black, in Virginia. Uh, and that was the first semester. So we did all these studies over the summer, like how we can have the ensembles uh, online. So we did a lot of research, uh, up to 20 musicians at the same time without delay, and we really prepared for that. But then as um, all of you mentioned, I also got very lucky. So I'm the director of orchestral activities here. And we uh, had strings in person, so no winds and no brass. They were rehearsed out, uh, outdoors uh, until November, uh, and yeah. I had so I was very lucky with that. Now, the third semester looking ahead, uh, which starts next week, uh, we have been able to get access to a huge uh, Commonwealth ballroom, so now mm -hmm. I can have actually full orchestra up to 49. So, you see, uh, 
each semester is going forward and I see really see a, a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, I, I'm sh shifting now to Delaware to Jim Anderson. James Allen Anderson, my dear friend from so many years. James, look, I'm very curious about, because I've been to your situation there, I have not yet been to Kansas City and to Virginia. Or Syracuse, I couldn't come up that time. I'm sorry, Jim. But I have been, of course, the Concordia. But you have a beautiful facility at Delaware. Um, do you have any such luck to have it, it like like Matthias just mentioned to do to rehearse your 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 wonderful orchestra in a larger space? Uh, yeah, well, thank you, Michael, for having me, and uh, I, I just would echo the the same comments that my colleagues here have made. Um, we have a challenge. It, it's been an interesting situation for me personally because I was on sabbatical in the fall of 2019, and then when I came back in the spring of 2020, we had about four oh, weeks wow. of rehearsal when everything shut down. And we were about a week away from a performance of uh, Respighi Pines of Rome, 95 in the orchestra. And everything just, you know, it, the halt came so quickly um, that it just, we had literally just a few days to, to try and uh, pull music together and things like that. And then, um, you know, I think all of us in the School of Music just scrambled to figure out what does that mean for the balance of that spring semester. Right. And um, over the summer, we, we went through all the studies as well. And we, I made the determination in the, uh, for the fall of 2020 not to meet in person. I just felt like there was too many unknowns and it was better for us to err on the side of caution. Um, some of my, my band colleagues, they tried to create some experience, but they were limited to eight people and they had to be at least 20 feet distance. Mm. And, uh, and that created all sorts of challenges as well. What the orchestra program did uh, for the fall was uh, focused instead on an optional repertoire uh, survey of sorts. And we did a diversity and inclusion repertoire, which was uh, coming off of all the uh, social unrest and those really important protests that took place over the summer. I want to get to that yeah. in a second. Well, that was really interesting because yeah. the, the format, which I think in some ways, some aspect of it is here to stay, this idea of the digital meeting and Zoom conferencing actually led to some really dynamic conversations with the students about the repertoire and a way to get to know them a little bit more on a personal level than can mm -hmm. take place in a structured rehearsal of 90 people. Good, 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 good. And so I think that, that that was one of the positive things that came out of it. But, you know, there's no substitution for making music in person. Um, our, our chamber music program in the fall actually thrived in, in working together with, you know, in, in smaller chamber groups and quartets and quintets, things like that, um, helped. But, you know, in the orchestra world, we have this canon of 400 years of phenomenal music and new music coming uh, every day. And then this diversity, inclusion, awareness of repertoire that has been on the fringe for far too long. Okay, uh, Jim. <laughs> Tapia. I will go from James Allen Anderson to James Tapia, and I'm going to jump around if everybody doesn't mind. Carolyn, you're next. James. The New York Philharmonic just put out a while before this was going on, 19 commissions to 19 women to write short pieces, which I have to tell you, I find offensive, not for the 19 women involved, but the fact that they have to write short pieces. Yeah. Which I find insulting. If 19 women wanted to write 19 symphonies or 19, you know, grand pieces, why not? But they're restricted to this we can only include you on this program if your piece is three to five minutes. What do you think about that? I think that the uh, myopic vision that we have currently on diversity and inclusion okay. is going to create unbelievable backlash. You know, there, there are members in my own community who are asked to be on certain search committees because they are Latino or African-American black and, you know, BIPOC and, and, and they feel it. They feel the weight of it. They feel the, it's not an insult, but they feel the isolation of being in that experience, you know, and, and so many composers, I think, are now being, you know, pointed out as the unique herald of the black of the Latino, of the female, of the, and, and, it, and it is, I think it is incredibly challenging and, and the doors need to be thrown wide open. And those commissions should have been left wide open. 
you know, and it, it takes someone of, 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 yeah. of real integrity and authority, someone like, like uh, Julie Giroux, you know, she gets a commission and then she writes whatever the hell she wants. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, well, it, it's her. just, it, yeah, it's just who she, it's who she is and, and, and the way it should be, I think. Okay. So, Carolyn, what do you I, think? Jim, I'm sorry to jump, but I'm going to jump around <laughs> now. Carolyn, what do you think about all of this? I'm very curious. Um, yeah, um, I think, I mean, I think it's a, it, it is an issue that, you know, we as a, um, an institution, we as conductors, we as composers, we as, uh, you know, people involved in the classical music world are grappling with, are struggling with, and are figuring it out, you know, uh, as we go along, basically. And there are obviously a number of initiatives going on. Uh, and there's certainly a heightened degree of awareness with regard to inclusivity, um, and, and representation, which I think is a first step and is, is super, super positive. Um, but, but yeah, and I guess I, I sort of uh, maybe perhaps bring a perspective as a you know, female conductor in what's obviously still a very, very male dominated sort of uh, profession. Yeah, I think that the, we sort of need to move away from, um, oh, we're programming a woman, uh, you know, a, a work by a woman composer to just kind of, we're programming this piece because it's a good piece of music, you know, we're of programming. Course. You know, um, you know, and and we're not we're not there yet. And I think um, you know we are working towards getting there. And I I hope very much that first of all these you know commissioning initiatives um, such as Project Nineteen that you just mentioned, Michael. Um, first of all, they're going to result in more repertoire, which in itself is positive. Um, and, you know, that's going to expand the canon and that's going to give us as conductors more of an opportunity to, to program these works and, you know, to have them sort of, you know, at our fingertips, as it were, when we're looking to, to you know, put programs together with respect to, you know, um, it potentially being offensive. Um, I, I, I don't know, I guess I... Um, I totally understand where you're 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 coming from, um, but as a composer, I'm sure you 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 recognize um, you know when somebody wants you to to write a three to five minute piece, it's certainly much cheaper for the commissioning organization when than than when they want yeah. you to write a thirty minute piece or a, an hour and thirty minute piece. So I I don't know yeah. whether it's you know financially driven. I don't know whether it's perhaps a pragmatic thing in that you know the the New York Philharmonic uh, likely recognizes that audiences tend to be quite conservative. And, you know, they're uh, perhaps going to be open to hearing a, a fanfare, a, a work by Jennifer Higdon, uh, before they're going to be open to hearing a symphony. So perhaps, you know, we might not, not necessarily know, but there may be a, a longer term strategic goal in mind, whereby this, this project, for example, could... Um, initiate audiences, for want of a better word, uh, and, and show them composers that they might not necessarily be familiar with, and then perhaps yeah. a few years down the track, you know, uh, it will be possible to to move on to, you know, longer longer works, larger scale sorts of works. Turning to Matthias, Matthias, do you see any value in what's being done, or do you have any other opinions on this? I'd be very curious. I totally see value in this, because um... Kevin and I, we just finished um, conducting academy uh, for the second time, and that's a big uh, component about diversity and inclusion. Uh, and that certainly has been a benefit for us in the COVID time to really focus and thinking about how to be creative, what to program. And this uh, decision uh, with New York, I think that's going into the right direction because we have been like seeing numbers which have been quite shocking, especially from major orchestras, not only in the United States, who like barely had any underrepresented composers over their history. And yeah. there are like a little bit lower, smaller orchestras, but have been like 70% of underrepresented composers and female composers. I think that's really something which needs to, to improve. And that's a step, I think, into the right direction. Um, I'm mean, talking about Chicago Symphony, uh, uh, Philadelphia, they're just very conservative, as you mentioned. Well, Chicago remains that way. Philadelphia brought in uh, uh, women composers, uh, uh, also uh, women of, of color and so forth, instantly, within like a week. Yeah. And it, I'm very familiar with their programs because I've spoke, spoken at length with Yannick, for example, before this all came down. This is a very interesting development, but it's not new. I will tell you this in my experience, because at almost 70, I can tell you I experienced things like this in the 60s, not with women composers or black or brown composers, not at all. 
but with a certain group of composers who were able to get in and then they were cut out. Or at the Philharmonic, which is my home orchestra, bringing in a Latino woman to be the interface, Tanya Leon in the late 90s, or Kurt Mazur. But did Kurt Mazur ever conduct Tanya Leon or any of the pieces she re, uh, recommended? I don't think so. So these are these organizations dealing with with um, profit are very different than what you are or what you're doing in the schools. So Jim Anderson in Delaware, where you're not mandated to do anything because of making money and conservative people sitting there. How do you foresee going forward uh, briefly? And then I'll ask the same question of Kevin uh, to make this progressive push have meaning and this is my big thought and i ate somewhat what jim tapia just said i have to in the jazz terms be sent by the music s-e-n-t if it comes from you know a green blob from mars if that green blob from mars can write a great piece my god i want to do it jim speak to this please yeah, no, I, I would just say that you know, academic freedom comes, which, which is a great luxury, comes with a huge responsibility. And um, we take a real pedagogical approach to the programming here. And there we have four orchestras that do a variety of different styles and genres of music. Right. And so that's a, that's also a luxury. Um, but I think my my main focus as the director of orchestral activities is to make sure that the students are exposed to masterworks as well as new works. Uh, this idea of diversity and inclusion is an important component of that. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I had a conversation once with Liam Botstein, who said that great programming pairs works that reveal new things about the pieces, right? And yeah. so if we're going to do a, a war horse like Beethoven V, something like the Martineau, the uh, Memorial to Lidici, which uses uh, yeah. a quotation of the... Um, right the opening theme of, of the Beethoven in a very different way allows for conversations beyond the music, right? And so I think that deepens the experience for our students, that deepens the experience for the audience as, as well. That's a great, great response. And Martineau is becoming one of my favorite composers, by the right, way. And, and not even contemporary anymore, right? I mean, so there's a whole no. slew of, of new composers in this diversity and inclusion study we did. I had a, a list of 200 Probably. female composers, you know, many of whom were brand new to me, uh, most of whom were brand mm -hmm. new to me, I would mm -hmm. say. Um, and so there's, in terms of this idea of the, the previous question about um, right. commissioning, uh, you know, I, I think that the, the issue is more about what are the elements that are systemic? What are the systemic uh, um, barriers for female composers and composers of colors? Because that, that's clearly there. And that's a, essentially a 20th century phenomenon and beyond. And so um, that, that's what needs to be addressed. Um, I agree that the music has to send us. It has to. Um, and there's enough music to find those pieces. Uh, but in the past, we haven't looked, I think, as, as carefully as we need to now. Kevin, speak to this. Uh, what's sending you these days? And uh, to use my father's favorite jazz term. I think just like Jim just said, there's such a wealth of amazing music out there, amazing repertoire that we don't know. Uh, simply all for the wrong reasons, right? Simply because of someone's uh, gender or sexual orientation or color of their skin. Uh, I want to hop back just briefly and say that I don't really approach programming for my college students differently in terms of diverse programming as I would for my, my regional professional orchestra in Wisconsin. Uh, I try or I, I've made it a rule for myself, I guess, four years ago that on every single concert, there's a living composer on there and there's a composer who's from a historically underrepresented uh, background. Mm -hmm. Not to check boxes, but to for myself to explore more great music. And I only program music that I absolutely love, right? Something that sends me, something that speaks to me. And there's so much out there. Uh, to get back to the academia, uh, yes, city, I think that being in academia is such a privilege, right? We, we get to be really living this idea of being a student for life and learning alongside with our students. And that has been just so eye-opening for me. My students have marched on two years ago and have completely reformed 
our concert dress, you know, uh, switching <laughs> over to a non-binary concert dress and spearheaded that movement. Now every other ensemble on campus has followed suit. And they hold me accountable too in terms of programming, right? The more we explore in those terms together, the more they hold me accountable to to those ideas. And I love that. I'm going to hold you accountable because I'm going to Jim Tapia, who's just raising his hand. Jim, you want to comment? But then I want to add, ask a round robin question with getting short answers from each of you. But Jim, first, you want to say something. I just, I just want to say at some point, maybe we could bring this group back together in the future to talk about the publishing companies. Because uh, at, at, in this topic of conversation that we're in currently, we in the academy face the same challenges that anyone would when it comes to actually acquiring and, and, and receiving these works uh, you know, having them be available to us. And it is a challenge. There's no doubt about it. Um, you know, I wanted to do the William Grant still finale from the symphony number no. three with the all Eastern NAFME orchestra. And we, we can't get it. We can't get it from anywhere, not from the William Grant still foundation, nor from, from its publishing company. So, you know, so now we're doing Hindemith March instead, you know, and, and it's, it's wonderful music, but those are, those are not the kinds of challenges that we should be having at this point okay so, you have just so. raised something which i have heard <laughs> twice in one month from two very well-known conductors who may have major orchestral experience and world-renowned people they cannot get this piece they cannot get that piece i self-publish have my entire life all my stuff is digital everything is on my website and I've created a foundation for after my, my going, <laughs> which is substantially funded, which will be run by my family and by uh, my, my spouse, who you, you, you all know. Why? Because I have no confidence in the publishing houses largely. Also, it's nice to get full royalties and not have to deal with getting 10% versus 100. There's no need for it. And many of my colleagues have left the publishing houses just for this very question. For example, I studied with Ellie Siegmeister, some of you know, who was a great American composer. We tried recently to get one of his pieces for a pianist, a very famous pianist, and I had great difficulty in getting to it. I still haven't found it. And I was with Ellie when he, when he composed it. And he is published by Carl Fisher, but they can't find it. Well, that's ridiculous. Children can't find it even. So getting back to where we are on finding things, another conversation I've been having is my representation of my mentors. Who are my mentors? Apart from Siegmeister, my mentors certainly are famous people like Mahler, but also people I knew. And all of, pretty much all, except for Paul Creston and, and um, Walter Piston, who I did not know, although I had contact with them, I knew everybody else because I went to Juilliard and was, you know, was there with Sessions and Carter and David Diamond and Vincent Persichetti was my teacher and Milton Babbitt I drank beer with regularly. I mean, these were wonderful people. And, you know, speaking recently to a conductor who's conducted a lot of their music, Bill Schumann, Aaron Copeland was a mentor to me. If I would say to each of you, and we're gonna round robin for your orchestra, what two pieces of that generation the, what we call the greatest generation, like the World War II people. What two pieces would you love to do? And if you're having trouble finding the, that music, let me know. <laughs> but of that of that greatest generation of American composers, you are American-based university conductors. So who would you like to do? Carolyn, do you have any thoughts about this? Yeah, I mean, I, I have a long uh, wish list of works I'd love to do. Um, I've not yet had the opportunity to do Copeland Three. I mean, it's obviously a, a hugely challenging work, particularly for an academic orchestra, um, but I've not given up on that possibility yet. So it's um, it's definitely there, um, you know, on the, on the to-do list when we can find a, an appropriate uh, opportunity. Um, I mean, the, the Barber Piano Concerto, I've sort of uh, relatively recently discovered. And, um, you know, again, it's, it's sort of on the, on the, on the to-do list. I think uh, another work um, that I've, I've come across more recently is uh, a more recent composer, 
I don't know whether they're exactly fitting into your parameters, but John Carigliano's uh, Voyage for String Orchestra. Yeah, it's a wonderful uh, piece. Which absolutely is accessible for it is, uh, yes. a, a young orchestra and particularly yeah. people doing um, uh, string orchestra works in this COVID time. I can absolutely recommend that one. Um, no question about it. John is yeah. a very close personal friend and I premiered uh, one of his uh, his. Uh, pieces of the red violin suite from the movie with narration mm -hmm, mm -hmm. with Tim Fain playing violin and Robert Sherman doing the narration but I was just talking to John a few days ago he's uh, he's holding up during all of this yeah um, but you know you mentioned the Barbara piano concerto very fast funny story Barbara once had one of my friends over there and he took him outside and he said you see the see that pool over there and the guy said yes yeah, a nice pool you just put it in he says yeah that's the piano concerto <laughs> That was up in Mount Kisco. James Allen Anderson, what's on your wish list? Almost an impossible question. There are so many pieces. Uh, Two pieces, or maybe three now that Carolyn's gone to three. American. Um, uh, yeah, Copeland Three is is great. I actually did Copeland Three on my, my doctoral recital at Eastman. Uh, I don't know if I, I would pick it up again with uh, yeah. uh, with a university group. It is it is wickedly difficult, and each movement gets progressively harder. Um, but what a what a masterpiece! Um, so I guess if I were to pick a couple, David Diamond certainly would be at the top. His Eighth Symphony has always been a favorite of mine. Um, um, Roy Harris Third Symphony also. Uh, you know, in terms of, of accessing the music, we're very fortunate and we have a substantial amount of resources for rental. And usually another conversation, I think, having to do with the publishers is this cost issue. Right. And oh, yeah. um, because it's prohibitively expensive. I know we're, we're fortunate um, in that regard. You know why it's prohibitive? Because they have to make what they make to pay their employees and then they, they give the composer 10 percent right. or the composer's we, estate. We, we just finished and released a, a CD of Robert Moran's music. It just right. came out on Luma I Records. remember you were working on that. Yeah. Um, yeah, which is really terrific. And and Bob uh, Bob Moran has has self-published for for decades now because of all yeah. the issues that you just outlined. And so his access his access to his music is very easy. You just call him up and and he provides you the scores. Um, but yeah, that that is an area that needs a lot of discussion and and hopefully some they'll revise their policies. Kevin, I'm curious about you. What's on your wish list? Oh, gosh, so many things. Um, you know, something that we did a few years ago that I would love to do again, uh, because it's so, you know, James talked about the zeitgeist earlier. Uh, Howard Hansen's Song of Democracy for Choir and Orchestra. Wow. Talking about, about a piece, right, that, that fits into <laughs> the time we're living in right now. Um, but, but other than that, uh, you know, I have a great fascination maybe obsession uh, for the music of Dominic Argento. Uh, Wonderful. Dissertation uh, was, was on a piece by his, and I had the chance to meet him still at the very end of his life for the last yeah. three years. And uh, we had many gin and tonics together at his, at his beautiful home in Min Minneapolis. Um, being a vocalist myself, uh, have an affinity for, for works that combine right voice and the orchestra. So, all the many operas that he wrote, Voyage of Edgar Allan Poe, or, you know, the, his his version of the Casanova. Um, it's wonderful things. stuff, and it deserves to be done at the greatest theaters in this country. He was a wonderful composer with great skill. James Tapia, I'm just curious about you, because you are a man. We've had these conversations over steak many times. So tell me, what's on your wish list? Well, uh, one of my um, heroes as an undergraduate student was a, a pianist composer by the name of Robert Helps. Um, he was a student of Mary Whitehead's in New York City, and he taught at the University of South Florida in Tampa. And he wrote two symphonies, Symphony One and Two, and the Symphony Number Two exists, but it's only in manuscript and there are no parts, so that it has to be, you know, wow. put into digital format and then parts extracted. So that's a project we're working on. Nice. Um, the uh, the three Bernstein symphonies, one, two, and three, are a project that I would like to face down before it gets too late in my life. Um, I think that you know the Jeremiah and the Age of Anxiety carry with them such challenges uh, of the vocabulary of the 20th century, but also looking forward to the 21st century, and I, I think that would be something remarkable. Um, Hansen speaks deeply to me and, and is a person that I find uh, you know, the 
the narrative is natural to my own vocabulary. So the second symphony is, is, is truly a, a watershed work for me in, in that particular way. Um, and then we have on our books to do the David Diamond rounds for strings in the near future. And so That'd be great. such great music. Those are, those are the kinds of pieces that, you know, in the academy, I think the students really, they gravitate to the visceral nature of every one of those works and of the- It's fascinating what, what I'm hearing about, da what about David Diamond, who was an intimate friend of mine. I'm, I, I have many stories to tell you, including going to his house on Edgerton Street in Rochester. Matthias, what is your, what's on your wish list? I'd be very curious down there in Virginia. Also for me, I mean, such a huge list. And in general, I, I want to uh, just enlarge um, the American composer, my repertoire list, because it's not yeah. enough at this point. So uh, I just received two days ago, a huge package from William Grant, still starter, uh, Florence Price's Dances in the Canbrakes. All this funny uh, miniatures, which I'm planning. So that wish came true two days ago. Wow. Uh, and over that, I will then program it, um, continuing into William Grant Stills, probably the first symphony, the Afro-American symphony, which mm -hmm. I'll read off to have to do with my students. Then for sure, uh, something by Hansen, maybe second symphony or continuing um, with Copeland. Um, yeah. And don't know to not forget, uh, Michael Shapiro at once. Oh, please. Well, I have a new violin concerto I'm going to talk to you all about with Tim Fain, which is being done by three major orchestras and recorded on Naxos, but not being done in the universities yet. So perhaps we can talk. I'm, I'm sorry, Matthias, who is that? Who are you talking about? <laughs> the, the, guy you have the guy you have steak with, Jim. So <laughs> you're buying and next book time. Binders, book binder soup. Remember the book binder soup that we had? So yeah. like, Oh my God, was that good? Folks, you know, we can talk for hours and uh, maybe we will after this is over, but I, I wanna talk to you, but lastly, and come back to me in two sentences because there's just five of wonderful people on this with me. I asked this question recently of uh, my friend Gerard Schwartz, who's really a champion of the, all of the music you're talking about. And he recorded all of it with Seattle and Liverpool and the All-Star Orchestra. He's a, such a leader in this, like Kusevitsky was. And I asked Jerry, what makes certain music last? New music. Like you're talking to a living composer, as you know, a very passionate one. What will make any of our music last and other music not last? So in a paragraph or less, I start with you, James Allen Anderson. What do you think? Oh, I gotta go first. Um, I, I don't know if that's answerable, frankly, in the present. I, I think great works of art need the crucible of time to uh, be performed, to be experienced. Um, because I get all that, it's very subjective. It's very and subjective. I'm going to subjective because okay. this is a, a, at almost 70. It's having lived through COVID-19 pneumonia and been in the hospital. It's something I think about. Okay. What makes certain music last? You can go there and just say crucible of time. It's not enough, Jim. Well, I, I'm pushing you hard. Yeah. Tell me, tell me what's going to make, why is one piece of CPE Bach lasting and the rest of it not? Or one piece of David Diamond, like rounds. Why is that, why is that still relevant? <laughs> I, I'm asking, why does that make it? And maybe uh, David's um, piece that he wrote for Ravel doesn't. I'm not saying that this is true. And I well, had conversations with every one of these guys, by the way. Right. No, I just think that there are too many facets that are involved in that decision, right? It's got to speak to you personally. You know, we were talking a little bit, and I won't go too long, but we were talking a little bit about programming. And right. um, I, I wrote my dissertation on concert programming. And there's no way to define what is a great program. That's too subjective. But what we right. can agree upon are certain criteria that are valid criteria for putting works together. And so... Um, maybe talk about lasting, lasting. Don't go, don't go too far. I'm gonna pin no, no, you down, James. I'm trying to bring it back in here, but I think the idea of appreciating a singular work has right. to be the culmination of all these different criteria. Okay, and different for every single person. Okay, I'm just curious what Matthias thinks about this. Matthias, what makes a work get under the listener's skin and future listeners' skins? And remember, there are composers like uh, you know, many pieces of uh, Halevi. Or 
name a composer in that century. Who was the most, uh, Matthias, you remember that German French composer who wrote those big operas like Prophet and African? Yeah. You know who I'm talking about, right? Meyer Meyer, Meyer Beer, right. Meyer Beer. How many Meyer Beer operas are, we, are you performing these days? And he was the most successful composer of his period. <laughs> the most, I mean, brilliant money. So much so that Wagner wrote Judaism and music was so offended, you know, and he was, you know, you didn't give me enough money, Meyer Beer, why don't you do that? And then he turned on him. So why do we listen to Verdi, but we don't listen to Meyer Beer? Why don't we listen to, um, you know, we don't listen to Mercadante. Why? Gosh, what gets under people's skin? What, what, what is it in the music? Can you speak to that, Matthias? A tough question, as Jim said. I mean, that's, I think it has, it is related to the way we grew up in our family. That's to a certain point, even before our professional lives begin, that there are so, some traditions we are kind of, growing up, I think, uh, and then we go to these highlights, right? And we get in touch with all these uh, core stone, uh, not only composers, but then pieces. And then we grow up, grow up with them and we build a relationship with them. Right. Uh, that's something I kind of would point out that I have a, just a deeper uh, connection and or closer to uh, a worthy opera than a Meyerbeer because I just don't know them. Uh, and I didn't invest the way I might should have. And it touches me. And when this piece touches me, then it's always here and it will remain here. You just talked about something very special because I had this conversation also with Jerry Schwartz. We talked about Martineau, whose symphonies, especially the third and the fourth, which are brilliant, are not done here, somewhat in Europe more, but not done here. They were written in America. He considered, considered himself an American citizen. You know, that music really gets under my skin. I said, why? You know? And then I say, is it so much societal bringing us up in a certain way? If Lenny hadn't pounded Mahler into the heads of New York people and all over the world in the 60s, would it have made its way? I don't know. It's interesting. So, Carolyn Watson, I, I ask you, coming out of Australia and now living here in America, is societal pushing down on people or saying, this is the music you should listen to, says the orchestras, and others not? Is that part of the retardant? And, my God, I'm asking so many questions that are so important at this point. But speak to this, if you would. Uh, you are. You're asking so so many really big and very very challenging questions. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Bernstein and Mahler because I think you know to answer your question in in terms of you know um, works in the canon and how they sort of you know retain their, their popularity. I do think uh, very often composers and uh, and or works need a champion, need somebody um, you know who is in a position to stand up and say, I think this is a wonderful work of art listen to it you know yeah. and i mean obviously leonard bernstein being music director of the new york philharmonic that's a very prominent platform had leonard bernstein been a uh, music director of uh, the st joseph symphony in uh, missouri um you know where i happen to be a finalist for the music director position um i don't Ooh, know <laughs> I don't know, you know, um, and, and uh, you know, if I were to get that position or any other, you know, regional music directorship, I don't know that I would have similar sway. So I do think that there there is, you know, that that sort of public platform and that somebody who is in a position to, to sort of stand up and, and sort of, you know, have a have a voice. Um, I think also something, uh, you know, the intrinsic value of the music in and of itself is um, uh is, is, is part of that. And of course, mm -hmm. we can argue about, you know, who assesses that and what does really good mean? Because now yeah. we're, you Jim know. Anderson was talking about, I understand. Yeah. Kevin, Kevin Sudo and I, I'm just switching very quickly to all people will end with James Tapia. Kevin, you not only conduct in a, in a in, you know, in a, in, at Concordia College, but you now have, uh, is it Fox Valley? Is that the right name? That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So speak to this issue of getting under people's skin and, doing this championship, which by the way, Mengelberg did for Bern for Mahler before Lenny did. And so did Bruno Walter in the middle. But speak to what, how you see, why does certain music last and others pieces don't? Apart from 
the wonderful things that have been mentioned by your colleagues right now. What else is there? You know, I think relevance um, and how how a composer can express through their music the struggles that they're going through, either them very personally or their society at a certain time. And as we know, history repeats, right? We go through similar struggles uh, as we go through through our lives and, and, and centuries and so on. And how, how genuinely, how honest uh, a co composer, I think, can really express. I like story. that. The honesty is very important, the sincerity. Because you know what? Benjamin Lees, who was another one of that great generation, said to me, a composer cannot hide in his, in his or her music. Yeah. James Tapia, my dear friend, tell me, what are you thinking about this great subject? What makes certain music last and certain music not last? In the Mahler and Strauss class that I taught just this last semester, uh, we came to a class consciousness at the very end. Uh, so many of the class came knowing Strauss's music well, you know, the tone poems in particular, at not much of the Mahler symphonies nor any of the choral works and so at the end of it when we when we put our collective together we came up with this term this was my class's realization which was the integrity of the composer's narrative must be compelling and empowered by the craft and almost all of them came to the realization that that Mahler was compelled by the inner narrative of his entire existence, everything from his youngest age to his last days. That's Whereas Strauss was craft driven and found a way of couching his narrative inside the craft. Wonderful. And, and the, the, the whole class flipped over on this experience with the realization of the validity and the integrity and the honesty of the composer versus the craft and the delivery. Now, if the delivery is not well-crafted, we won't return to it. I don't believe as composers and conductors, you know, we, we, we take craft lightly. Um, if it is not done well, we won't return to it or we won't even address it. That's but well I think, I think in, in this moment, it, it is when the, the craft empowers the narrative and the honesty and the integrity, and it makes all the difference. Well, craft integrity, I have five wonderfully great conductors who understand the compositional process like nobody else on this wonderful interplay. So I, I have to thank you all for joining me um, again. Carolyn Watson, Matthias Almer, Kevin Suderlin, James Allen Anderson, James Tapia, my dear friends, thank you so much for joining me on this Interplay Conversations in Music. I'm Michael Shapiro, your host.